When I was a seminary student in the San Francisco Bay Area, I was a youth minister at this church, and uh, you might not know it, I don't know if you know it or not, but in the Bay Area is one of the most infamous prisons in the United States called San Quentin. And San Quentin is, is in the, the, the San Francisco Bay. And one time we had this little thing that our youth, uh, we had heard about, uh, you know, in the U.S. sometimes you just kind of hear about these youth gatherings, and we had a kind of connection with different churches. And they were going to have a bunch of people who had been, uh, they were basically lifetime convicts who were going to come and to speak to the youth. And it was mostly for kids that were at-risk kids, that they would come and they would hear things from these uh, people who, whose lives were pretty much uh, <laughs> going to be forever incarcerated. And it wasn't like I led a youth group full of a bunch of delinquents, but we were all interested in just kind of hearing what they had to say. So I took this youth group and we went and we spoke to them, and they had this panel of folks up there. And uh, these weren't them, but this is kind of the type of folks that were up there. You know, uh, pretty scary individuals. There's actually a couple women also up there. Big, huge guys, tatted up, some of them. And, you know, they began to, they just kind of sat on a panel, and, the, and their, uh, the interviewer, who was a, a youth minister from another church, was just talking with them. And, of course, the question really came down to, you know, how did you end up in this situation in your prison, basically for the rest of your life? And uh, what advice would you give? And almost every single one of them gave the advice that you would probably expect to hear uh, from, a, from a group of people that are uh, willing to speak to a bunch of kids. They, you know, don't make stupid decisions. Uh, stay in school was one of the big ones. Don't do drugs, of course. That was one of the big ones. You know, be careful who you hang out with. Uh, don't, don't, you know, bring yourself and don't get involved in gang violence because, you know, we were in the cities there and gangs were a deal. Uh, if, I don't know if you know it, but the, the Bay Area isn't just San Francisco, but it's also the city of Oakland. Uh, there's several little towns that are kind of around it. And Oakland in particular is pretty rough. San Francisco has some rough areas. So, but what I found intriguing is that as they were talking with them, it became clear that every single person on the panel there had committed crimes, they had committed crimes and gotten out, committed more crimes, went back to jail, committed, then got out on probation, committed more crimes, then went back to jail. And then uh, finally, most of them had committed the ultimate crime of killing somebody, which is why they were now back and in, incarcerated for life. And in my mind, I couldn't help but think, surely you've heard this advice that you're giving to these kids, you had heard it too. I mean, this is in the 1990s. It's not as though, you know, stay in school, don't do drugs, don't get involved in the gangs, and, and be careful who you hang out with was novel, uh, uh, novel uh, teaching back then. That was pretty clear. And so I couldn't help but wonder at some point, why didn't you follow your own advice? Why didn't you follow the, the advice that you're giving to these kids yourself? And I think the reason is because our human nature really is to to know better than we live. We have a tendency, we know better than the way we very often live. And we do this, all, we all do this to a certain degree. It's not like all of us maybe in the, the level of these guys who are the, the convicts or the prisoners. But for example, we all know we should eat, eat right and exercise. We should probably avoid refined sugar and stuff like that. And it's like, we know that, but do we do that? You know? And I can tell you, I know that, 
but I don't do that. I love my refined sugar and sweets. I have a, a huge sweet tooth. Uh, I know that, but I don't do that. I wish, I wish that I could love exercise and eating right, but I hate both. I, I, I do. I exercise only purely out of discipline, and I don't really. I, I think if you looked at my diet, you'd go, eh, "It's not horrible, but it's certainly not anything that would, anyone would say is extremely healthy." And, the, and we do it as Christians too. We do it as, as you know. We know that we should pray. We know we should read the Bible. We know we need to be in the, in the Word on a daily basis. Some people do, some people don't, but we all pretty much know that. But our human nature is we know better than we live. And uh, when it comes to God, we could even ask questions like, well, what is important to God, you know? And who are the people important to God, and why are they important to Him? We could all give probably correct answers to that, or close to correct answers. But if what we live is the true reflection of what we believe then we'll find that very often the answers of our lips don't really sync up with the way that we actually live our lives. And again, it shouldn't surprise us because it's human nature. Apparently, it's even dog nature to know better than we live. And the Israelites in the time of Amos, they were no different. They knew better than they lived. They had the high ethics and the law of Moses, but they refused to live what they know. They knew they weren't supposed to worship idols, and yet they did. They knew that they should be a people of justice and mercy, but they weren't. They knew they shouldn't uh, abuse the, the refugee that comes into their nation. It's actually clearly in the Old Testament that they're not to abuse the alien because they themselves were a displaced people at one time. That's the, that's the rationale the Bible gives. It says, you, used, you were kicked out. You were refugees in, in different nations. But they didn't. They treated people horribly. They, they didn't do justice. They didn't love mercy. And they wouldn't listen to the prophets that came to them. Prophets like Amos. Prophets like Ezekiel. Prophets like Jeremiah. Prophets like Isaiah. Prophets that came to warn them that their actions were going against what God had clearly told them what they needed to do. To warn them that they were not living the they were not living to the level of which they understood and knew their God. They were corrupt, they were unrighteous, they were idolaters. And one reason why they didn't listen, though, is because they liked to listen to one side of the promises that had given to, been given to them from God, how God was going to bless them, how God was going to make them a mighty nation, how, God was, how they were a chosen people of God. But they didn't listen to the other side of those equations, which in the covenants were always, I will bless you, I will be with you, I will make you a, a mighty nation, I will keep you safe if you continue to worship me, keep your eyes on me, be the kind of people that I call you to be. There is very much an if-then in most of the covenants. And the Israelites disregarded their part of the covenant. And they held on to the promises coming from God, but they didn't consider their own place in that relationship. And one reason why they didn't believe that they were going to ever really face any condemnation from God is because at the time when Amos was speaking to them, they were the most stable, most prosperous nation in that region. All the other countries around the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel were in turmoil. They were fighting amongst each other. Their economies were in a mess. But the nations of Israel and Judah were strong at this point. And they believed that the judgment that was coming to them from God would never fall on them because they were too important to God in order to fail. We have promises. 
God said to Abraham that he will bless many nations through Abraham. God said to David that he would always have a descendant upon him throne. We are too important to fail. But they weren't too important to fail. At least as a kingdom. And so today we're finishing the book of Amos. We're finishing our look at the book of Amos. And as we finish, we're going to go through the last chapter, which is chapter 9. And as we get started in this, Amos asks a very provocative question. And it's even one that I think some Christians would kind of have to take some time to think about. He asks this question, and, he, and the prophet is speaking as God to the northern kingdom of Israel. He says, are not you Israelites the same to me as the Cushites? The area of Cush is modern-day Ethiopia. Are you Israelites not the same to me as the Cushites, declares the Lord? Did I not bring Israel up from Egypt, the Philistines from Kaftar, the Aramaeans from Kir? This question to the Israelites would leave them stumped. They would not know really what the answer to this to be. Just like probably some of you are wondering, uh, how do I answer this? And the reason why it would leave them confused is because the answer that seemed obvious to them doesn't seem to be the answer that, that the prophet is going for here, that, that God is going for through the prophet. You know, this first one, are you Israelites not the same to me as the Cushites? Most of the Israelites would answer that, no. We're more important than the Cushites. Aren't we? We're the chosen people. We're the people for whom God has directly intervened with in our history in order for us to prosper. He, he brought us out of Egypt. He, he gave us the promised land. Now, we're, aren't we more important to God than the Cushites? And then he continues that question. He actually kind of, did I not bring you out of Egypt? And the people of Israel would be like, yeah, you brought us out of Egypt. And the Philistines from Kaftor? Uh, did you? I don't know. Not important to me. The Aramaeans from Kir? I don't know. What's the relevance here? We're the chosen people. What are you trying to say here, God? And the relevance is that God has been and God continues to be active in the lives and histories of all people because he is the God over all. Now, it's true that he may not be recognized as the only God by most of the nations at this time that this was written, most of the nations, most people at the time this was written believed that there were many, many gods. And you had your local gods, you had your national gods, you had your village gods, you had the god of the river, you had the god of the, the tree. But God knows that he is one God. And if there's one God through whom all things are created, that he is the one God overall. And if there's any God that's involved in the lives of people around the world, it's just the one God. There's not a bunch of different gods out there. There's just one. Now, it's true. It's a little more complicated than that. You have other spiritual forces going on in the world. You have demons. You have Satan. You have all these other things. When people used to worship the God of Moloch by taking their firstborn children and throwing them into a fire as, a, as, a, as an offering sacrifice to their God Moloch, they weren't offering those offerings to the one God. They were offering them, I believe, to a demonic power. A mis and Satan can use demonic powers to mislead the per people and also to present himself as something that is more powerful than he really is. But 
at the end of the day, there's only one creator God, right? We believe that. We believe there's only one God. So who's the God of the other people around the world, even if they don't acknowledge him? And we run into that today. We're seeing this happen in Israel today. You have people that believe they worship the one God, and they scream Allah Akbar as they take people hostages and they murder people. They believe they're worshiping the one God. Yet the people of Israel say, no, 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 no. We, we're the people of the one God. Who's their God? Whether they acknowledge him or not, there is only one God. And God is active in the lives of other people. Uh, Moses' father-in-law, his name was Jethro. He was a Midianite priest. He wasn't a Hebrew. Was God active in Jethro's life? Scripture would seem to say yes. And the relevance is this, that people might be ignorant of, the, of who God is. People might be ignorant that God is, is, uh, is active and that God really has made him reveal himself to Jesus Christ, but this doesn't prevent God from being God. People's ignorance of him doesn't make him disappear. And one of the things that is important about understanding what Amos is talking about and the thing that Israel had their heads in and, and the reason why we have this Bible is kind of an amazing thing because it carries the history of a, of a people and a tribe who were never the, the strongest people in all of history, never the largest nation in all of history, not the longest continuously lasting nation in history. Do you know what is the longest continuously lasting either kingdom or nation in human history? Egypt. Egypt has been around before Israel was around it was around during the disappearance of Israel, and it's still around today. Now, of course, they shifted kind of you know, being under pharaohs and that sort of thing, but Egypt is the longest consistent nation-slash-kingdom that has been in existence in history. Longer than Greece, longer than any of the, the, the various civilizations have come and gone. And yet, they're not the history that we follow. They're entangled with the history of Israel, but they're not the history that we follow. Why is it that the Bible follows the history and the story of the people who come, become known as the Jews? Because God had a specific purpose for the people who are known as the Jews. And Jesus, in the Gospel of John, has a discussion with a woman in the city, in the area of Samaria. And this woman is kind of the, this discussion is kind of the epilogue to the story of Amos. And if you remember the story, Jesus and his disciples are going through Samaria, a region which, by the way, most Jews would go around as they went from, from either Jerusalem to Galilee or vice versa. But Jesus was going through it, and he stops at this well, and he's hungry, his disciples to go get something to eat, and this woman comes. And she begins to draw water, and Jesus asks her for water. You may be familiar with the story. And she, she even asked, why are you even talking to me? You're a Jew from, you know, you're a Jew that comes to your legacy. Your ancestry comes from Judah. I am of the remnant of the northern kingdom of Israel. I'm a Samaritan. Why are you talking to me? And they begin to go back and forth, and they have this part of their discussion. The lady says to him eventually, that, well, we worship on this mountain, but you Jews tell us we have to go to Jerusalem to worship. And Jesus says to her, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the father and mother, father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. And then this is important. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. 
That's a statement that could be said about many, many, many nations and people throughout history. As human beings, there is this, there's something within us that knows that we need to connect to something greater. There's something within us that has this divine spark that longs to connect to divinity. But most people worship what they do not know. They just kind of come up with things to worship. Sometimes they worship their ancestors. Sometimes they worship, you know, like we talked about, sort of nature gods and things like that. Sometimes you have the Greeks. They have a whole group of gods. They have like this dysfunctional family of gods. The Romans were the same way. You Samaritans worship what you do not know, but we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Now, notice Jesus doesn't say salvation is from Israel. Because at the time of Christ, there is no nation of Israel. That was destroyed. The Jews were allowed to come back under Cyrus, uh, who was the king of Persia. They did reestablish the temple. They did rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. It's a long, convoluted history. There was a tiny little portion of history where this guy, Judas of Maccabees, did reestablish a little tiny portion that he called the kingdom of Israel, but that was crushed. In the time of Christ, it's the Romans who are really in control. There's a puppet king named Herod who himself grew up in Rome. Herod considered himself more Roman than Jewish. And so Jesus doesn't say salvation is from Israel, but he does say it comes from the Jews. And this is why we have this history here of a relatively small, by most measures of the world, somewhat insignificant country and people known as the Jews, because salvation comes from the Jews. There is a purpose behind their destiny. And that's what Jesus is telling the Samaritan woman. There's going to come a time when you won't worship on this mountain. You won't have to worship in Jerusalem. But you guys don't know what you worship. We do know what we worship, and we being Jews at the time Jesus is saying this, and salvation comes from them. This is an important thing for, for Christ as he tries to to, to, as we take this into ourselves as a church, that Christ tells us this. Because all the people, all peoples despise the Samaritans. Uh, their whole, no one liked the Samaritans, particularly the Jews. They saw them as kind of this half-breed group of folks. And their history was different. You don't see a remnant returning from the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel. When the northern kingdom of Israel is destroyed, it's just destroyed. And you don't see a people being taken into captivity where they kept their, their traditions, they kept their, they kept their identity, their national identity, their tribal identity, their religious, because that had been compromised under their first king. Remember the first king in the northern kingdom of Israel, a guy named Jeroboam I, the first, one of the first things he did was to set up those two golden calves so that the people wouldn't go to Jerusalem to worship. So right away, the northern kingdom of Israel had lost their sense of who they are as a people of God. That's why you don't hear anything from them. But the southern kingdom of Judah, they kept that identity, even though they themselves were also corrupt and also had gotten into idolatry. They kept that identity. And when they're taken into exile into Babylon, they keep that identity and it comes back. The reason why we call them Jews is because they're the people of Judah. We don't call them, you know, the... the uh, well, now they're called, you know, the, you have the nation of Israel. They're called the Israelis. They don't call them Israelites anymore. They're Israelis. But the reason why they, the, the religious identity is Jews is because they're from Judah, and they kept that identity when they went into Babylon, and then they came back from exile. But that's just, we're getting ahead of ourselves because none of this has happened yet. They're listening to 
uh, Amos, and they think, well, but we're chosen. We're unique. We're special. And this being special means that we will never be fall, we will never fall as a kingdom. But they were wrong about that. Their uniqueness wasn't found in their national borders. Their uniqueness wasn't found in their economy. Their uniqueness wasn't found in their military might. Their uniqueness was found that God did make a promise to them, which went beyond whether or not they continued to follow him or not, that he was going to use them, that salvation would come through them. But Amos tried to warn them. In verse uh, 8, he says, Surely the eyes of the sovereign Lord. Again, Amos is emphasizing how God is overall. The eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. And here he's talking about the northern kingdom of Israel. I will destroy it from the face of the earth. This is something that was inconceivable to them. And then there's like a bit of a pause. Yet I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob. It's interesting how, the, how he makes kind of this little difference. There's a difference between the kingdom of Israel and the house of Jacob. The house of Jacob are the people. And as these prophecies of Amos come to an end, just like we often see when David writes the Psalms, it starts out rough, but it ends with a note of hope. There's also a note of hope at the end of Amos because God does have a plan for them, and the plan is that which Jesus told the Samaritan woman, salvation comes from the Jews. And so because the Jews must exist in order for salvation to come from it, these are the words of hope that are given to Israel at the end of chapter 9, at the end of the book of Amos. So pick it up. Yet I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For I will give the command, and I will shake the house of Israel among all the nations as grain is shaken in a sieve, and not a pebble will reach the ground. All the sinners among my people will die by the sword. All those who say disaster will not overtake or meet us. In that day, I will restore David's fallen tent. I will repair its broken places, restore the ruins, and build it as it used to be, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declare the Lord, who will do these things. So the picture that Amos gives, the picture of hope is that there's going to come a time that the Jews that have been scattered into the other nations will be shaken out of those nations and they'll fall back into the place that is theirs given to them by God. And that they will never be uprooted from that place again. Let's go continue to read it. It says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. In other words, there's going to come a time when there will be this ingathering. There's going to be this harvest that comes back in. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from the hills. I will bring back my exiled people, Israel. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Now that's an interesting passage, especially verse 15. As I was preparing for this, I had to really think about that because the truth is this. Eventually, when people were taken into exile, they, the, the kingdom of Israel, as I told you, was destroyed by the Assyrians. There's really no exiles taken. They're taken, but they never really come back. There's never this, this remnant. This, the history of Judah is different. 
the history of Judah, the kingdom of Judah is conquered about 150 years after the kingdom of the northern kingdom of Israel. They're conquered by the Babylonians. And this is the book of Jeremiah. If you want to read a contemporary prophet while it's going on, it's Jeremiah. And Jeremiah keeps telling the folks that want to say, we are too important to be conquered. Jeremiah keeps telling them, no, you're not. And the more you fight against the, the inevitable will of God due to your sin, the more difficult this whole thing is going to be. And that's why Jeremiah is not liked by the king of Judah because Jeremiah keeps saying, all the other prophets around the king are saying, oh, God's going to be with us. We're too important to fail. And Jeremiah's like, nope, you're going to fail because you've chosen to be against God. And so Jeremiah, if you read the story, he's called the weeping prophet because he knows his country's going to fall, but he's also being taken and thrown into prison. He's being persecuted by his own uh, leadership because he's giving this message they don't want to hear. In fact, one of the, the famous stories, he brings a scroll to the king, has everything he's written, and, as, and as, the, as the person in the court is reading it, the king takes it and cuts it off and burns it. The guy reads, reads more than Jeremiah says, he cuts it and burns it. That's the disdain that they had for what Jeremiah was trying to warn them about. But Jeremiah was right. However, the big difference is, is then after 70 years of being in exile, and there's more than one, there's like three different times when people are taken from Israel to Babylon. The Babylonians had this idea to take the best and the brightest of their conquered nations, bring them to Babylon, and use their gifts and talents for the Babylonian Empire. This is the whole story of Daniel. If you read the story of Daniel in the, in the Bible, he is an exile that's taken into Babylon. Him and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're taken into exile into Babylon, and they're expected to give their gifts and talents to the betterment of the empire of Babylon. And the whole story of Daniel is how these Jewish people dealt with being forced to serve a pagan god, a pagan king, not a pagan god. They wouldn't bow down to the pagan god, which is the whole story of them getting thrown into the, uh, the furnace, right? You know, you know these stories, right? If you don't, read the Bible. Uh, uh, Daniel is a good one to read. This is, he's, can, he's a story taking place in exile. Ezekiel is a prophet prophesying in exile. But then they get to come back. But then they're uprooted again. They are uprooted again. The, when they come back in the time of Christ, uh, uh, before the time of Christ, about 400 years before the time of Christ, they come back, they rebuild. The temple's not exactly what it had been, but they rebuild. And then about 70 years after Christ, 70 AD, the, the Romans decide they, they've had enough with Jewish insurrections. And so they decide we are going to destroy the central part. We're going to destroy the heart of Judaism. We're going to destroy their temple. And in 70 AD, the temple was completely and completely destroyed. They, they not just burned it down. They knocked it down. They pushed all the stones off of what is known as Temple Mount. And today, when you see that place where people go and they worship, and you see the Jews guys worshiping at, that's not the wall of the temple. That's just the foundation of the Temple Mount that had been flattened. This mountain was flattened so it could hold this big structure called the temple. But the temple was completely eradicated. And the Jews dispersed. During the time of the Crusaders, when the Crusaders had a kingdom in Jerusalem for another 150 years, did you know that during that time, Jews were not even allowed into the city of Jerusalem at all? Muslims could come in. Christians could come in. Jews were not even allowed in the city. 
and they were dispersed around the world. It's called the diaspora. They just kind of go, and this is where they start to come into contact, and they, they form these communities in Europe and in the Middle East, eventually over in the U.S., because of this diaspora just kind of spread out. And then in 1948, because of a lot of circumstances that go on, the nation of Israel is reestablished by the UN, which a lot of Orthodox Jews don't consider to be a legitimate reestablishment of the kingdom of Israel because they say the Messiah needs to establish the kingdom of Israel, not the United Nations. But regardless, it's there. And I believe, this is my own personal belief, I believe this is the fulfillment of Amos, that I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted. I think that this planting of Israel, they will never again be uprooted until they fulfill the purpose that that nation has in history, which we see in the book of Revelation. They are a kind of a, a, a spark point to what we call, what would eventually be the end times, the tribulation, all this. Israel's purpose now in history is to be this marker to be a warning to us to say things are happening. I tell you what, I'm not too concerned what's going on with the Hamas and Israel. Oh, is the end near? I don't know. When the temple is rebuilt on Temple Mount, people get ready. And they, there are people in Jerusalem, do you know that they are planning to rebuild the temple? They already have the priestly vestments made. The, the giant menorah has already been cast. When we had a, our Jewish friend here, someone asked him about the cattle that are being bred in order to do sacrifice. And I don't know if you picked up on what they were talking about, but there's a belief that you have to have a cow that is pure red in its coat. And there have been, there have been you know, animal scientists and all that who have been breeding this animal. And it has happened. There's a bull, that there's, a, there's a strain that has no other color in it. And that's why he mentioned that, that there's a little bit of controversy now because this next generation, because they have to keep breeding these until it happens that they're available for sacrifice. And apparently in this latest generation, oh, there's a little bit of a white, you know, white hair here and there, which makes it no longer pure. And so they're actually kind of freaking out about this. But they are making these plans. And when that temple gets rebuilt on Temple Mount, if that ever happens, you may say, well, how's that, how can that possibly happen? You have the Dome of the Rock up there. You have a mosque called the Black Mosque up on where the Temple Mount used to be. How can that happen? Pfft. How could it happen that the whole nation is reestablished in 1948? Israel took over the Temple Mount in the Six-Day War. They took all of Jerusalem. They took the Sinai Peninsula. They took all that, and they gave it back to the Muslims because they felt like they'd bitten off a bit more than they could chew, and they didn't want everyone turning against them. They had control. They had control of Temple Mount in the early 1960s, and they gave it back. So it's not as though it's impossible. So we started this sermon series by asking questions like, what makes a nation righteous? What makes a people righteous? What makes a family or individual righteous? And we're, gonna, and we're ending the series by saying, well, what's the purpose of all this? Because events just like the ones we've seen in this last week, they bring up these questions again. People inevitably start asking these questions again. Well, what does this mean? Well, who's right? Who's wrong in, this, in the situation in Israel now? What does it mean in the big picture? And if you notice, everybody thinks God is on their side. Right? It's right back in the place of Amos. Who do they worship? Well, they all say they worship the one true God. What is different is that you have these three uh, monotheisms, Islam, Christianity, and Judaism, but they're all somewhat interlinked. 
So who worships the true God? What's going on? Who has the rights to be in the places of the world? And they all believe that they have a message that has to be given out there. Israel says the message they have to give out, we are still chosen, this is still our land, we still have every right to be here. And the Muslims in the area say, we, we worship the true God, we worship the final revelation of God given to us by the prophet Muhammad. We are the true place, Israel, the Jews, the Christians, they were steps towards ultimate truth. We have every right to be here. This is our place, Allah Akbar. And we have a message as well as Christians. The message we have as Christians, and one reason why we don't fight over the land of Israel, and we don't fight over the Temple Mount, and we don't fight over these things, is because in Christ, we are the temple. We don't need to have a place that we say, this is our temple. We are the temple. Catholicism has kind of said the Vatican is their temple, but they've also kind of gone off the, gone off the, the, the track quite a bit. And we don't fight over the land of Israel because we're part of a kingdom that doesn't know borders. It's the people. It's not the nationhood. And we as a church represent that. And the message that we need to get out to the world as citizens of God's kingdom is that if you want to be on the side of God, you have to be on the side of Christ. Because why? Because salvation comes from the Jews. This is why Jesus comes first for the Jews, then for the Gentiles. This is what the scripture tells us. It comes from them, and that salvation is there for them. Anyone that says, well, there's the path for the Jews, and then there's the path for the non-Jews, they're not following the scripture. Jesus came first for the Jews, then for the Gentiles. And if you want to be on the side of God, you have to be on the side of Christ. And that's our purpose. This is why we exist, to live and to share the message that God demonstrated his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He is the final sacrifice once and for all. There doesn't need to be a new temple built on Temple Mount where they again start to have animal sacrifice. To have a build a temple and to begin to have animal sacrifice is to reject the sacrifice of Christ. To say that I can earn my way to heaven, I can, I can do certain things, I can go on pilgrimages, I can do the things necessary to earn my way to heaven, is to reject the sacrifice of Christ. And if you want to be on the side of salvation where God made it possible for all of us to come to him, then you have to be on the side of Christ. The final sacrifice, once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. And that's our purpose. Our purpose given to us to God is to go into all nations and to make disciples and to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and to teach them to obey all the things that Jesus gave us, all his commands. And the promise is, is if we follow Christ in what he calls us to do, then he will be with us. And it's still an if-then proposition. Should we, as Christians, decide to go on a completely different direction and we stop going into nations, taking the gospel, sharing with them the hope that is found in Christ, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that we commanded, he commanded us, then our paths are going to go a different direction. Because God and Jesus, God through Jesus, is going to stay on his path. He knows what he wants. There's a place of destiny for people as individuals, there's a place of destiny for individual groups. The destiny place for the Jews was salvation comes from the Jews. The destiny place of the church in which there's neither slave or free, Jew or Gentile, 
male or female, we all have the same uh, place in the eyes of God, the same value in the eyes of God. Our purpose is to take this gospel of hope given and take it out into the world. And if we ever deviate from that, then we're deviating from Christ. And to be a faithful as a church, faithful as a people, it's pretty simple. We just do what Jesus said to do. Go into all nations. And do what? Make disciples. Of who? Jesus. How do we do that? Well, one way we do it is we get them into the place where they, are, they acknowledge their sin, their need for Christ, death to self, life to Christ. We baptize them. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's not that the, ba- the waters are magic, but we bring them to a place of understanding that repentance leads to obedience. And if we are obedient in our repentance, then we will follow what Jesus told us to do, which is to have this, this uh, experience that we can remember where we die to self, where we willingly go into a place and we're buried under the waters, but we're raised to new life in Christ, symbolically cleansed of our sin, so that we can then go and learn all the things that Jesus taught, his commands. And what are most of the commands of Christ? You see them in the book of John. We're not talking Mosaic commands. We're talking about commands like, if you love me, you will keep my commands. And what does Jesus command? He says, love one another as I have loved you, not as your neighbor or not as yourself, as I have loved you. By this, the whole world will know you're my disciples. These are the commands. It's not rocket science. And yet... So often, we know better than we live. We know this. I haven't said anything that none of you don't already know, but do we live it? And that becomes a challenge for us also as individuals and as a church and as a people. Do we live what we know? Because what we live is the real expression of what we believe. I can say I believe all kinds of things, but how I live, that is the true expression of what I believe. So this is our challenge, and we live in challenging times. We live in times where we're seeing history unfold in front of us. We're seeing prophecy fulfilled, and yet we're so used to these things being in front of us that as it happens, we just kind of go, I wonder if there's really a God. It's crazy that people would be asking things like that. Is there really a God that is moving humanity through a certain course when you look at what's going on around us? But people do. Because we have a tendency to just sort of see what's in front of us and discount it as, well, I don't live in in prophetic times. We do. We need to keep our eyes open. But it's not about trying to figure out all the questions of national security and all the things that we're being asked. The main question that we need to be able to answer as people, as Christians, isn't who's right or wrong in Israel and Gaza. The question isn't trying to answer who's right or wrong in the Middle East or even what's going on in Russia or Ukraine. We can certainly have our opinions, but the main question we need to be able to answer is who is Jesus Christ? Who is he? Why is he important? And how do we need to be able to relate to cut through all the the craziness and the noise that has been built up around Jesus over the centuries? All the false teachings around him. All the things that obscure the simple truth that God's expressed his love for us so much in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
He that knew so no sin became sin for us so that we could share in his righteousness. And by putting our faith in him, by believing in who he is, what he has done, and what the resurrection means, we too will be people of eternal life. We will be people whose sins are forgiven, not because we're good people, not because we followed certain rituals, not because we did a bunch of things that are considered good works, but because we put our faith into the hands of God through Jesus Christ. And that that sacrifice is enough for my sin and your sin and the sins of everyone, even those that don't acknowledge him yet, but maybe through our being able to share the gospel with the world, someday will. Let's pray. Father God, we're thankful that you've given us as believers a sense that Life is more than just living and dying, that we, we know better than we are to live in silence and pointlessness. But Father, we pray that you would help us to, in this world that, that demands so much of our attention through media, through economics, through all the things going on in our lives, it demands so much of our attention, it's hard for us to keep our eyes on what you're doing. But we pray that you would help us in this, that your spirit would would embolden us not to be not to be jerks about things because your scripture says that we're not we're to give but to have an answer that we are to have an answer we do it with gentleness and respect we do it in the name of Christ we do it in the in the spirit of Christ which was a spirit of love but also uncompromising in its truth that we will fulfill our purpose, especially during these times when we look around us and it certainly feels like there are things going on. And this has been going on for 50 years, more than 50 years, really, since 1948. But Lord, that we would be a people aware that you are a God who's moving in history. And that we, you've chosen to have us be alive during this time. And that this is the generation and the next generations behind us that we're responsible for. We can't be responsible for the generations that have gone ahead of us, but we are responsible for the generation we are in and the generation or two behind us. To be a people that follow what you told us to do when you said, all authority on heaven and earth has been given unto me. Therefore, go and make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And I will be with you always, even unto the end of the age. So, Lord, may we take that seriously and help us to be a people of light and salt and be able to answer questions when people, if they know that we're believers at work, if they know that we're believers in our family, and they start asking us questions about Israel and Hamas and all that, may we have the wisdom to say, you know, I don't really have all those answers because this is a very difficult geopolitical mess mixed in with religion and rejection of who Jesus is, because that's one thing that they have in common. They all reject Jesus. But let me tell you what you need to know from me as a Christian is that salvation came from the Jews in Jesus Christ. And if you want to focus and be on the side of God, you need to be on the side of Christ. And you get on the side of Christ by repenting of your sins, trusting in his sacrifice for you, and following him, asking his Holy Spirit to guide you. 
May we know our message well enough that we can share it with the questioning people around us. And they may choose to reject it, but Father, give us the courage never to go into silence, but to share it, certainly with gentleness and respect, but to share it nonetheless. Because we live in times which certainly have every, every indication that we are relentlessly moving toward the fulfillment that we see in the Scripture. And we live in a time, Lord, and help us to, to be aware of this, that we can look back over human history that's been documented and say, yeah, a lot of this has already come to pass. We're near the end of this story. And may we have courage to see things that are in wisdom, to see what's ahead of us, and to take that as a motivation to share with others that they need Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.